Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 59. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks as usual to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, it's been a while since uh, we have uh, had an interview with Andy Blow. He's been on the show quite a few times already. But uh, I want to remind you that we've talked about hydration and electrolytes in detail in previous episodes with Andy. And in particular, episode 49 was uh, the one where we really covered how hydration and electrolytes may impact uh, your performance in endurance events and how critical it is, especially when you're doing longer events in hot and humid conditions. So go and check out episode 49 to learn more about why hydration electrolytes is so important. And if you want to try your first box or tube of electrolytes for free, you can use the promo code DEATTRAFLONSHOW, all on word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. And big thanks as well to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka is the leading manufacturer of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And they're used by some of the best sports in triathlon, as well as other sports for that matter. But people in the triathlon world that you will have heard of that are using Roka include Katie Safiris, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, and on the long distance side, for example, Lucy Charles. So uh, it's really a who's who of triathlon. And uh, you can understand why, because their products are really amazing. It's almost a case of you have to try them to believe them. Uh, you can get 20% off your entire order on roca.com with the promo code TTS, all caps. So let's get on to the first question for today. And this one is from Patrick in the United Kingdom who writes, Hey, Michael, really enjoying the podcasts. Lots of great info as always. I wanted to put forward a question for the podcast. I'm a recreational cyclist from the UK who likes to do road races, criteriums, and then later in the year, hill climbs. One aspect I'm really struggling with is how to approach the base phase of my season. I have seven to eight hours a week to train and don't often get the chance to do long rides, maybe once or twice per month. Given that my races are no longer than two hours or around 60 minutes for the crits, what would be a good approach to really put the blocks in place for specificity later on? I can never seem to decide and therefore never build a proper base in the early part of, of the season. My power is from 1 minute to 15 minutes progress, but I really want to make a big leap over the winter by building that solid base. All right. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for your question. It's a really good one. And uh, first, I'm sure you have listened to it already because I believe your question came in some time ago. But if you have not, check out episode 201, which uh, is on base training. And I did that with uh, James and Lockie and the other coaches here at Scientific Triathlon. So we go into some a lot of detail there about what to think about in base the base training phase. But to give you some specifics based on the context that uh, you're writing about, uh, you're actually phrasing the question really well when you mention uh, putting the building blocks in place now for specificity later. So your races obviously are intense, as they are for most of us. Uh, maybe the Ironman would be the exception, but uh, let's not get into that now. Uh, either way, your races are intense and they will require intensity in training. So this time of year, what's really important is that you build a foundation fitness that will then later on allow you to do do that intense training to, to benefit from that and, and be able to translate that into race performances. 
so to build that foundation fitness, that's not to say that you should not do any intensity now. And if you listen to that episode that I mentioned, 201, you already know that uh, all of us agreed that you don't have to go out and do just long, slow distance. But to to play devil's advocate, there there is maybe a case for doing that. There are a lot of of athletes and coaches that have been very successful with that approach. Generally, though, I would say that it's uh, more appropriate for really high-level athletes. But uh, one example is uh, Arthur Lydiard, and uh, his approach was to, for the first four or maybe five months of base training, he would just go out and run at uh, not necessarily slow distance, actually, but uh, you wouldn't do any specific intensity, but you would just go and do 100 miles week after week after week. And some of that might be actually as fast as what we might call tempo pace. But overall, the the main objective and what happens when you do that sort of training with uh, most of it being that low intensity zone one, zone two type training is that you build that strong aerobic base. And Lydiard and his athletes then used it later on to do a lot of really, really intense work when they were approaching the racing season and uh, obviously to great effect. And this way of training is actually, we see some similar things happening in uh, World Tour cycling teams, actually, where uh, they tend to go out and do a lot of riding in the mountains during their base training without much specific intervals or things like that, if any. Sometimes they might go hard uphill, but it's uh, not the structured type of training that we we are used to these days. And uh, But that works. It obviously works. So, But that being said, to mostly do this sort of long, slow distance training, it does require quite a bit of time, I would say. So that's why... It's not necessarily what I would recommend for most age group athletes, but I just wanted to put that out there and show that there are many different ways to skin a cat. So either way, for base training for you, the main objective, and for anybody, (laughs) the main objective is to build the foundational attributes that will allow you to then take on and absorb more training stress later on. So we want a strong aerobic foundation and we want to prepare you metabolically and cardiovascularly for that hard work to come. We want to build structural resilience and readiness with some good strength and conditioning work. And we want a good biomechanical foundation. So let's elaborate a bit on on these topics. In terms of the strength and conditioning building structural resilience and readiness, this will look very different depending on the individual. But the main objectives of the strength and conditioning that you would do would be to Uh, First, achieve the minimum required mobility and functional uh, mobility specifically to be able to ride comfortably for as long as needed without any loss of efficiency or increased risk of injury. Then we also want to do the S&C to learn how to activate or fire different muscle groups effectively uh, to reduce risk of injury. That can happen, for example, when you have imbalances and some other muscle groups need to overcompensate for a particular muscle group not pulling their share of the work. But also the uh, this uh, firing of uh, the right muscle groups and, uh, and learning how to activate the right muscle groups that works to improve your exercise economy so you can go harder for the same amount of oxygen. And we also finally want to move through your strength training periodization in a safe and efficient way that uh, eventually will lead to improved maximum force and then rate of force development. And these are the aspects that will then translate into improved exercise economy. 
On the biomechanics side that I mentioned, this uh, actually plays into what I already said about the functional mobility and muscle group activation. They play into the biomechanics quite a bit. But uh, let's talk about specifically the biomechanics on the bike and biomechanic development on the bike. It doesn't have to be anything complex, but uh, the main thing that I would recommend is to include work at uh, a different, a wide range of cadences, all the way from below 50 or below 60 up until well above 100. Uh, I've talked about cadence many times before in several Q&A episodes, and the main take-home message has always been to train at a wide range of cadences because that is beneficial. Uh, there are benefits to training at very low cadences and benefits to training at very high cadences. High cadences are, are great uh, neuromuscular stimuli. And they cause, obviously, you have to then do fast, repeated muscle contractions, and they will force your brain and your nervous system to work quickly and to form efficient motor patterns. And uh, low cadences, on the other hand, especially when they are done at moderately high power outputs, to high power outputs, uh, that's great for practicing muscle fiber recruitment and uh, almost like increasing the pool of available muscle fibers that you have available to you in cycling and also make different muscle fibers uh, more resistant to fatigue. And finally, on the biomechanics side, obviously adapting to the bike position, uh, if that's something that you need, it, this might be a good time of year to go and have your bike fit updated. And uh, if uh, you are going to do that, the earlier the better, because then you have more time to work in your new position and uh, and adapt to that position. And then finally, when we get to the aerobic foundation side of things, the number one thing here is just consistent training. And for you, even though seven to eight hours per week isn't a huge volume, as long as you can do that consistently week in, week out, it ends up being a very significant amount of training at the end of the year and a great stimulus for improvement. So eight hours per week, for example, if you do that, uh, then it ends up being more than 400 hours of training per year, which is a very respectable amount. So there's uh, no shame in, in that. And uh, definitely that's the number one thing to look for, getting that consistent exposure, the frequent exposure to training. But then we come to the real crux of your question with uh, the long rides. And uh, I do think that to maximize the improvements in your aerobic fitness and your aerobic foundation, uh, you you should try to, to do some longer rides. But that doesn't mean uh, that you have to go out and do five to six hour rides. You really don't. I do think, however, that you should try to do at least one three hour ride at least every other week. And it sounds like you might have the option to do that uh, from what I read into your question. And if on top of that, you can add a couple of medium duration rides, so two to two and a half hours uh, over the course of each two week block, then that would be a great, great added benefit as well. So for example, a typical week for you could be to do one three hour ride, one two hour ride, and then three one hour rides. And that would work out to be eight hours. And then the next week, you might not need to do the th three hour ride. So uh, you could do something as simple as uh, three times two hours plus two times one hours, or maybe even two times two hours and uh, four times one hours, uh, depending on your available time windows. I would say that some of the longer rides that you do should be just uh, easy aerobic, so staying in zone two, 
but uh, I would not object to adding some longer tempo work to one or two of these long or medium duration rides. You might start with something as simple as 45 minutes at tempo and then gradually increase the duration from there. And also you can combine some of the different types of uh, work mentioned. So for example, you can include high cadence work in the early parts of your long ride uh, that actually works great as a part of your warm-up. And then in the main set, you could uh, do some low cadence work at, uh, at a tempo intensity. There are many different ways to go about things, of course, but this should give you an idea of how you can tackle this. Uh, but to specifically answer your concern about not being able to ride really wrong, long more than once per month, as long as you can keep some of those medium uh, to semi-long duration rides, you'll go a long way with that. And it's certainly better to consistently be getting in those two to three hour rides than to not do that and then just do an epic five to six hour ride once per month. So again, that consistency uh, is uh, going to trump that really long epic ride. I hope this help, helps, Patrick, and uh, good luck with uh, your training. The next question that we have is uh, from Miguel in Mexico. And Miguel writes, Hello, Michael. This is my second Q&A email for you. Uh, thanks a lot for taking time to answer my questions. And also thanks for the amazing content uh, you put out each week. Question one. In episode 177, Dr. Steven Seiler mentioned that low-intensity training for endurance athletes shall be below the athlete's first lactate or ventilatory threshold. Uh, on the other hand, in episode 186, Alan Cousins mentioned a couple of times that low-intensity training shall be in or around the first lactate-slash-ventilatory threshold, uh, plus-minus 10 beats per minute. Uh, for all around the the first lactate threshold. So my question is, which one of these two approaches would you prefer to prescribe your athletes and why? Is there any risk to go anaerobic if you are training right on the first threshold, as Alan suggests? So for me personally, I tend to distinguish between general endurance workouts and then your more specific LT1 or aerobic threshold workouts. The endurance workouts that I prescribe are done at a pretty wide range of heart rate or pace or power, and that goes up until that first threshold, up until LT1. But the athlete certainly shouldn't feel pressed that they have to be at the high end of that range. They should feel comfortable. They should be able to hold a conversation. And then where in that range that they end up being, it doesn't matter. This is just general low-intensity training. And if all of the above is true, so they feel comfortable, they can hold a conversation, etc., etc., and they end up even potentially being slightly faster than the high end of that range, that's not a big deal either. Uh, I want the athlete to be able to feel that this was actually a low-intensity workout, and if they do, then that's all fine. Because maybe what ended up happening was that they simply ran an unusually flat course or something like that and then naturally the pace will be slightly faster for the same effort and the same physiological output than if uh, you run your normal hilly or undulating course so and even if there are parts of a workout where you are uh, a bit above your your first threshold your lt1 which by the way is of course a moving target and we can't pinpoint it to to one beat per minute or anything like that but even if we could and we have an estimate for that and and you are spend some time above that it does not ruin your workout there's no magic switch going on there intensities all fall on a continuum obviously there's no need when you're doing low intensity to 
to try to necessarily force things and always have to be at the upper end of the target range and and you don't want to be spending the majority of your workout time actually above what your target intensity zone is whether you're using pace or heart rate or whatever but uh, what i'm saying here is that uh, if you end up spending five or ten minutes of a one hour workout that is uh, slightly above what you have set to be your your first lactate threshold then that's not the end of the world and uh, yeah nothing nothing bad really will come out of it but uh, just don't make it a habit to train harder than prescribed but uh, know that uh, the, how you feel also has a big correlation with what you're actually physiological what's actually going on physiologically in your body as long as you if you're actually in tune with your body and that is why it's very important to learn to be in tune with your body as well then so that was the endurance or general endurance workout the zone 2 workout then i also prescribed more specific lt1 workouts and these i personally tend to prescribe a, a narrow range actually it tends to end up being maybe around eight beats per minute uh, so usually from around five beats per minute lower than lt1 up to three beats per minute higher than lt1 uh, honestly i don't think that it needs to be this narrow and i don't think that this approach is any better than the wider range of alan cousins or better than as steven seiler says keeping it at or well keeping it below the first lactate threshold Personally, I would say that maybe if you go 10 beats per minute higher than that threshold, then uh, I would personally consider that a bit too high. But again, RPE, breathing rate and ability to hold a conversation will also play a role there. And uh, in some cases, it might be fine if, if all of those are really under control and the athlete really feels that, hey, I am at my like they, my first threshold or below that and they are an experienced athlete and they, they are in tune with their body that's totally fine but maybe to give a general guideline i would prefer to keep it uh, cap it at five beats per minute above the first like the threshold uh, 10 beats per minute below i would say that that's uh, that's perfectly fine what ends up happening anyway in most cases is that you might target that 10 beats per minute for the start of your workout and you end up getting there pretty quickly but then over the course of the workout you warm up and you might even start to go a little bit harder as you warm up and then heart rate also might rise to closer to that lt1 or the aerobic threshold so maybe that would be a wider but good general recommendation from my side 10 beats per minute below up to five beats per minute ab uh, above uh, the the lt1 and uh, and finally to answer that uh, question about uh, whether there's any risk of going anaerobic uh, there's always some lactate production going on in the body at any intensity uh, going above the uh, the aerobic threshold is not going to ruin the effects of the workout and uh, but if you the point that Steven Seiler is making is that if you constantly end up uh, end up drifting into that moderate intensity zone, then over time that accumulates into fatigue, and uh, and is not beneficial for your training improvements. So uh, so that's why it's important to to pay attention to that, but also equally, as I mentioned already quite a few times, you need to be in tune with your body as well. Okay, so the second question from Miguel is. Um, Based on your background in medical equipment, what characteristics shall one look for when buying a blood lactate meter? Is there any brand or model you would recommend? 
So uh, I looked into this obviously before buying a lactate meter myself, and I looked into some research on reliability and uh, and accuracy. And uh, then the other main factor or an important factor is the price of the device itself, but more importantly, the price of the test strips, because over time that ends up being quite a lot. So I did look at all of those factors. And then I also asked around, I asked some top physiologists for their recommendations. And to sum up, there's no clear no-brainer. There are a few good options out there. But what I ended up getting was uh, the Lactate Plus, and it's, it is one of the devices that research has shown is among the most accurate. And the other great thing about this device is that the strips tend to be a bit cheaper than most other meters. A link to one peer-reviewed publication that compared three of the most common uh, blood lactate devices. They are the Lactate Pro, the Lactate Plus, and the Lactate Scout. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes, And uh, but basically to read off the abstract here, uh, just quickly to give you the rundown, this study showed that the Lactate, Lactate Pro and Lactate Plus compared well to each other, displayed good reliability and accuracy when compared to a laboratory-based analyzer. Although the Lactate Scout also displayed relatively good reliability, it was not as reliable or accurate as the Lactate Plus, Plus or Lactate Pro. And then on the pricing side of things, I just looked up on Amazon.co.uk what the cost for, and I used that because they have uh, both Lactate Pro strips and Lactate Plus uh, test strips, so I could compare the pricing from the same provider. And on there, a box of 25 Lactate Pro strips costs £57, and uh, the Lactate Plus box of 25 strips costs £45. So it ends up being almost 50 pence per strip in uh, pricing difference, which uh, uh, with with just a few tests it actually starts to add up suddenly. So so that's why on the pricing side, Lactate Plus is a really good choice. And uh, so this is what I based my research on, and I have the Lactate Plus, as I said, and I'm happy with it, but uh, there are plenty of other options. So it might depend on if you can get some sort of deal as well, find a good discount or anything like that. And question three from Miguel is, are two-minute steps useful when performing a metabolic ramp test, or shall we look for a longer duration in each stage of the ramp? Thanks in advance and have a great day. So, uh, no, I don't think that two-minute steps are enough at all. I think you should look for five-minute stages. I would accept four-minute stages, but when I see tests go down to three-minute stages, that's when I start to question the validity of the test. And that's despite, I know that a lot of labs do use three-minute steps, uh, but uh, if I were to look for a test and go in a lab, I would honestly start to look for another test provider if uh, the lab that I'm looking at provides only three-minute stages, just to make sure that uh, you get accurate results from your testing. And based on, from everyone I talked to in top-level exercise physiology, five-minute steps seem to be the well-accepted gold standards, standard, and the four minutes is just a bit of, for me personally at least, I tend to think that it's probably pretty close at least, so, so I can live with that. But three minutes, it starts to be far enough from that five-minute gold standard that, uh, that that's when, when I get a bit skeptical. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for your questions, Miguel and Patrick, and everybody keep sending in those questions. 
I, I have a quick house cleaning item, and that's actually that uh, my messaging function on the Scientific Triathlon Facebook page was blocked for some reason by Facebook. So if you're sending messages there, I'm not really ever, uh, able to read them and especially not reply to them. I basically can't access the messaging function. So please send your questions as emails, michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's michael with a K. And uh, hopefully Facebook will unblock that messaging function. They just did that without providing any reason. So uh, that was a bit annoying, but uh, let's see if it ends up being unblocked. And uh, this, by the way, is as of early November 2019, uh, just in case you're listening to the in the future when the messaging function, function might be working again. Big thanks before we go to Precision Hydration. Go and get a free hydration plan on precisionhydration.com to get an idea of how much fluid and electrolytes you should consume in your next race. And use the promo code DEATHTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube for free. And big thanks to Roka. You can check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear on roka.com and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.